Welcome to Steeped in the 10,000 Things, a podcast that looks at evidence-based medicine around East Asian medicine, acupuncture, martial arts, tai chi, tea, and functional foods. We are a a science-based research podcast steeped in tradition and looking through the lenses of tradition and science and seeing where they converge. And I'm your host, one of your hosts, Dr. Michael Brown, an acupuncturist and Chinese herbalist in the Bay Area. I'm Zachary Krebs. I'm in Oregon. I'm an acupunkling and public health student right now. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at research around tea, tea as functional food, and uh, what its potential benefits may be with respect to human health. Xiao is forsythia fruit. Uh, it is uh, one of the more common herbs used in some of the um, clear heat relief toxicity. It's a, in the category of clear heat relief toxicity. It's used to treat fevers. Uh, has a bitter aromatic uh, effect, so it's going to clear heat, vent heat. Uh, basically, um, it's anti-allergic, antibacterial, anti-emetic, antiviral, antipyretic, hepatoprotective, anti-inflammatory. So you're going to see it in some formulas for uh, middle stage infectious, upper respiratory infectious diseases and febrile diseases. It's It's been used for high fever and sore throat and stuff like that for long time so temperature wise is that on the cooling end of the spectrum yeah cold? yeah i think so as an antiviral slightly cold okay yeah um well, so that's interesting and it brings up well it brings up the fact that this is a very folk way of understanding medicine right it's like you go to an er and they've got you on multi-drug multi-treatment um, multiple kinds of drugs very tightly regulated, uh, pumped into them. So multi-drug and multi-treatment therapy is, is the standard. But when you go ask an untrained person, it's they're just like, oh, it's just one thing. Like, where's the one pill, the one treatment, the one drug? The... And this is even a question for us going forward. Is there even just going to be one vaccine? No, there's going to be like probably 20 different vaccines available in different parts of the world. You might even be able to get multiples at some point, And we may find like this vaccine plus this vaccine actually gives you longer uh, protection. And that's the, the successful thing. Plus a mask, like still going to have to wear a mask because the vaccine only works for like a, a part of the year, just like the influenza vaccine or whatever. So we'll see. It's, it's just a fascinating convergence. I hear you. And I think um, a lot of people want to boil down Western medicine to be completely reductionistic and only like look at one thing at a time. And some of that's true. But like you're saying, like there's numerous vaccine trials and there's combinations of them. There's different dosages and different populations. There's studies done on them. There's different uh, groups in those studies that receive different dose levels. I mean, it's pretty uh, complicated and yeah, just boiling it down based on misunderstanding it is an understandable reaction. Um, but I don't see it as necessary to do that because 
just because they're doing that doesn't mean our treatments don't do what they do as well and they in fact usually work together really well yeah uh and so yeah this this conversation just started because of like yeah the the pandemic documentary has been making a resurgence and you know a lot of people want me to watch every single youtube documentary that comes out and and so i'm just not willing to do it what i am willing to do is look at all the central claims that they're making because people really torn them out and just go like line by line and then i fact check it and if like 60 percent of it is bogus i just don't even look any further and usually the authors are part of a club of people that have an agenda to you know get rid of vaccines or whatever it is that they're about and that really like is most of what they're doing and then they have some small insights on you know what's going on with the pandemic but honestly you can find that in a lot of other places too there's really nothing that unique to it just like log on to facebook and you'll find like 80 percent of those arguments from your friends so yeah um that's how i'm feeling about it slightly annoyed but glad i'm drinking really good tea because that's helping me <laughs> yeah i'm doing the super strong mate like we were talking about oh nice so you're you're on the mate and i'm on the tea so um how do you prepare it today i just threw half a cup of chopped up mate and into a pot and then steeped it for probably this one is the second steep so I, the first steep i steeped for maybe a, a couple minutes and then this one i steeped for like for about an hour because <laughs> i forgot about it and so now it's it's super concentrated and stem. helping no stem stems it's just stem. the leaf just the leaf oh, okay yeah it's from eco teas i believe eco teas yeah that's what i drink they i think they're in ashland oregon where i used yeah, to live yeah. or one point they were we drink a lot of that stuff get like huge pound bags of it and it goes away really quick yeah back um, when i was in uh it was around 2010, 11, 12, one of those years I bought, um, I think I bought like 10 pounds, just 10 one pound bags. And I've been slowly going through it. <laughs> That's awesome. It's, it's, uh, I still have like one or two left. Very good. Um, I switched to a aged Shang uh, Pu'er today mm -hmm. so it's a 15 year old age oh, wow. and i'm towards you know that state of mind that that creates apparently uh, at our local uh tea store the owner bought out someone's supply because wow. of covid you know having a lot of pressure on tea businesses and he got a lot of this puer and so wow. there's some pretty nice cakes available um but I've never had this particular one. Um, I guess Dai is like a tea growing region or um, production company, one of the major ones. Uh, that's what he told me at least. So mm -hmm. it, it's really dark and it feels like it's been aged longer. It has that kind of a Chinese medicine herbal taste going on to it, which I really enjoy. Does it have any wet flavor, the wet pile? I forget what the Chinese for that term is, the... I'm not even going to try it, but it is like a wet, wet kind of dank soil, almost like not quite mildew, but like, like musty, 
riverbed or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? That flavor? Yeah, I mean, I don't know precisely what you're talking about, but yeah, it has that damp fungal kind of uh, tone to okay. it and taste and smell. How was it? Was it aged here or uh, somewhere else? I don't have the full history yeah. on the aging, um, but it was aged somewhere because it's 15 years old. So, that's, that's you know, allegedly... And I, you know, like, you know, the tea business, like any yeah. other business, maybe is aged for 12 years or 20. I don't really know, but, um, the well, wrapper looked authentic. Yeah. And it, if it's that dark, I can see in your mug, it's, it's quite dark. Then it has to be aged long enough for it to start oxidizing or something because typically Sheng raw pu'er like that is is golden if it's if it's brewed dark it's not you're not going to get that brown amber deep color unless it's cooked or or the show puer so and the tannin content is vastly reduced i mean i steeped it for a really long time and wow. it's totally smooth and just tastes great so that's usually nice. a sign it's So, you know, this is the whole um, podcast on tea studies or two or three, or I forget exactly what we're going to do. Well, we have a, a list of them. We're not going to go over all of them. We're slowly realizing that our uh, appetite for research is much greater than our ability to actually speak on it and process it all for everybody in this podcast. So we're going to try to pick, we pick two studies uh, to represent and kind of discuss the larger topic that we're going to talk, discuss, but essentially studies around tea and their impacts on health and how researchers have tried to and are trying to understand potential uh, health benefits and or at least uh, benefits in reducing risks for disease. So there seems to be uh, evidence, plenty of evidence uh, that drinking of tea regularly provides some kind of protection against certain chronic diseases. I agree. And so are you, are you saying that if I drink tea, I'm never going to die? I'm just trying to make you laugh. No, I, I don't think you're saying that. Do I just I, need one product to solve all of my health problems? I, I think that answer to that question begs another question is what happens when you die and does tea turn you into an immortal? Maybe you don't, <laughs> maybe you don't survive physically, but do you have some spiritual continuity or like, is there any continuity that can be achieved after your physical body dies? That's a good question. Honestly, I would be okay dying while drinking a nice tea like this versus just some like other, story of like a hospital bed with the light flickering or whatever as i lose my consciousness or whatever the standard fear is this is way better than that yeah i remember ming talking about the ideal setting for for the moment when you die is sitting uh above a lake with a mountain behind you and says something something about riding a dragon uh so uh, i think I was trying to imagine 
slipping off into an endless dream that starts where you're just sitting there and then you float off over the lake. It's quite beautiful. herbal medicine has a long tradition of using tea as as an, a medical substance. Uh, it's in a classic formula for early stage um, upper respiratory pathogenic infectious diseases, uh, particularly like um, diseases or, or upper respiratory infections that start with a headache or tightness in the neck and shoulders, muscle pain, uh, something like that. Um, there was at least some understanding that tea helped drive treatment to the upper part of the body. Um, it does increase caffeine increases, uh, vasodilation and, or sorry, vasoconstriction stimulates, uh, an opening. <laughs> it, I'm totally getting my, my concepts mixed up, but, um, speaking of folk medicines, um, caffeine is often used as a, as a first line recommendation for migraines, uh, certain kinds of, uh, I got, you know, I'll Google that. Um, yeah. So caffeine is a commonly used neurostimulant that also produces cerebral vasoconstriction. So vasoconstriction. Yeah. So tea being used in Chinese herbal medicine, uh, it is the leaf of the camellia sinensis plant. Uh, opinion is Lu Cha and, when we speak about tea on this podcast, uh, we're generally very specifically speaking about the Camellia sinensis, anything derived from a Camellia sinensis plant. That is the tea plant. And similar to grapes and wine, you can get a wide variety of wine from various types of varieties of grapes. And similarly, you can get a wide variety of teas from uh, different varieties of Camellia sinensis plants, and that is based on where they're grown, how they're grown, uh, and different subtle genetic variations. Uh, classically, it's it's known to specifically enter the channel related to the stomach, the Yangming channel. Uh, it's Chinese therapeutic action. So, in Chinese herbal medicine and in Chinese uh, medical theory, East Asian medical theory, tea is known to help harmonize the stomach. It basically directs rebellious stomach chi downward and relieves diarrhea. So it has some effect on the gastrointestinal system and helps normalize digestive functions uh, and the, oh, wow. the, gen the general movement of digestion downward uh, into the intestines and out, right? As opposed to upward, which would be hiccups, belching, uh, epigastric pain, pain under the ribs, just under the center there, uh, acid reflux, anything going the wrong direction, essentially, nausea and vomiting, um, any kind of general gastrointestinal intestinal discomfort. So classic simple tea would be uh, lucha tea with gansao licorice, uh, licorice root, and datsao, uh, the jujube fruit. Classically, 
it also dispels dampness. It has a, a bitter flavor, which we know has a draining effect, has an effect to generally cause physiologic, physiological functions that uh, encourage um, certain kinds of downward draining uh, resolving functions. So uh, urination, for example, is a, is a downward physiological function. Um, oftentimes bitter bitterness causes uh, either too much bitterness can cause loose stools or um, that's a good example of it affecting particularly the stomach or the spleen systems. Um, so Dispelling dampness also reflects the this uh, the tea plant's effects on obesity. Obesity is something we'll be talking about later through the research, but um, dampness is as we slightly dis kind of discussed last time is is fat in the body also accumulation of of certain uh, sticky phlegmy substances which can include uh, fat deposits around the body or in the blood. And then finally, it uh, clears the head. It's said to clear the head, uh, which anyone who's uh, drank tea or caffeine uh, after waking up uh, groggy and sleepy knows knows that effect. And it can also be used uh, for a headache. So uh, certain kinds of headache respond to uh, caffeine and uh, tea. And this has been used classically. The classic exemplar formula is the Chuanxiong Chia Tiao San, the Linguisticum Chuanxiong powder to be taken with green tea. Uh, and that's uh, a case of, of wanting to take herbs with tea because actually drinking tea with some formulas actually reduces um, its uh, absorptive absorption and function then. So classic example is if you're taking ginseng, this has been measured, um, and you drink tea, it reduces the effects of the ginseng or the absorption of the, the uh, compounds relevant to its effects. I'm just listening in. So if yeah. I my double fried pork meal with a couple beers, I can drink some tea and it'll help me with the fallout of that. Um, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing like uh, I've, I've had those experiences yeah, eating like a really fatty, uh, terrible meal with too much oil in it and then having some puer tea and that normalizing the digestion Absolutely, or drinking yeah. a cup of puer before. Absolutely. And what research has shown clearly is that drinking tea affects fat uh, metabolism in the body. So it actually uh, helps the body break down fats and it also prevents absorption of fats in to in through the intestines. So uh, it affects um, how our bodies uh, digest and, and absorb and manage fats on multiple levels. So that's, it's not only your experience anecdotally feeling that, and of course the experience of trillions of uh, Asian people who have drank tea with meals for thousands of years, but it's also, um, we can understand it from a research, experimental research perspective and knowledge that has been demonstrated in studies. So it is, yeah, yeah it, it, tea is a central nervous, central nervous system stimulant, mainly, of course, through its effects on, its effects, the, the caffeine uh, in, in tea. There are other compounds in tea that have central nervous system effects uh, that aren't actually stimulating, they're actually regulating something like um, uh, L-theanine and um, 
which has actually a, a kind of a, not sedating effect, but a regulatory effect to, to offset some of the impacts of caffeine, which is why it's said that drinking whole leaf or high L-theanine content containing teas, uh, it's said that you get more L-theanine if you drink the whole leaf, like in matcha powder, for example. Uh, it has less of a spike of of stimulation uh, because of the balancing effect of of the caffeine with the l-theanine and and other compounds so i've played it. around with that a little bit as a biohacker just drink a cup right. of coffee and take a l-theanine supplement yeah that's become with it. can become popular if i've heard of that how did that feel for you generally when i mix things like that it feels similar to what a good tea would feel like if i drank it but not the same i mean it just feels a little bit off so maybe my ratios were wrong or you know i had a little too much coffee a little not enough the l-theanine or maybe i took too much l-theanine or maybe the particular kind of coffee or the kind of pill that i took was coated in a certain way i mean there's just so many variables that it's easier yeah. to just source high quality whole leaf tea drink that in my opinion yeah, it's probably more cost-effective too. And speaking of that, a lot of the studies I was perusing that you sent my way, um, they had really weird ways in which they brewed the tea to administer mm -hmm. to the you know rodents in some of the studies. Like I was going to point one out where they uh, brewed it for four minutes in like a beaker and then shook it up at like a consistent speed and then gave it to the uh, mice. So the mice were probably like, what the hell is this? This I want a, a nicely brewed tea. Like who shakes and brews their tea for four minutes? <laughs> but, but you know they're they're doing a crude extraction and trying right. to get stuff out. So I get it. But you know even that leap from like my study to human studies is one leap. And then if you change the method, like the way I brewed this was like five grams with like a 20, 30 second steep, and then I do that a couple times. That's way different than what they're saying in some of the studies. But then there's the cumulative effect. I've been drinking tea for, I don't know, five years. Those mice are on tea for like, you know, two weeks. So, you know, it's hard to study these things. I guess we can go into that now. Um, let me just read off the, the different studies that we have here. So we have a number of studies that we'll link to. Uh, we have the full papers linked here in the, the show notes. And it's a nice collection of more recent uh, systematic reviews when available. Some of them are experimental uh, studies, lab, lab studies. And some of them, a majority of them are uh, epidemiological studies uh, that attempt to extract connections and rule out uh, connections and see if there's any possible link between drinking of tea and some health benefit or health effect. But what I want to do is just at least read through the titles of these so we kind of cover and get a sense of all the things that are being studied and looked at. So for example, Camellia sinensis, tea and cancer risk, a systematic review. This is in a, a probably a much smaller journal that may not necessarily be uh, of the highest standard, but it, it's still an interesting look at tea, especially from an, uh, an Asian perspective. It's, it's a journal of Ayurvedic and herbal medicine. So um, tea being one of the most drank um, most drank beverages in the world uh, a lot of people are interested in its effects so the study included right yeah right so people are in taiwan and vietnam studied studied tea and uh, it's it's an interesting primer on all the research the next is 
dose response relation between T consumption and risk of cardiovascular disease and all cause mortality, a systematic review and meta analysis of population based studies. So, a lot of the studies we'll be looking at or that are often uh, discussed are population based studies, uh, epidemiological research. And uh, it's because the effects of, of something like diet, um, like drinking, something that you do daily that may have very small effects that accumulate over time. It's, it's really hard, if not impossible, to, to do short-term uh, placebo-controlled randomized clinical trials. You just, you just, you're not going to get any relevant significant information out of, out of that. So what these studies often are doing are tracking populations of people over uh, many decades and surveying them and trying to gather a quality database of information. Yeah, next, we'll go into that yeah. too a little bit yeah. about the different studies. This was a study that was really interesting to me. It came out last year. It's called Habitual Tea Drinking Modulates Brain Efficiency, Evidence from Brain Connectivity Evaluation in the Journal Aging, published again, like I said, 2019. And this was done in China at the Laboratory for Brain Bionic Intelligence and Computational Neuroscience. Also, researchers at the Center for Life Sciences at the National University of Singapore, as well as the School of Computer Science and Electronic Engineering at the University of Essex in Colchester in the UK and the Brain Mapping Unit, Department of Psychiatry, University of Cambridge, the Herschel Smith for Brain and Mind Sciences in Cambridge, United Kingdom, and finally, the Department of Psychological Medicine, the Yonglu Lin School of Medicine in Singapore, the National University of Singapore. So this is a really cool study that was doing fMRI studies uh, of people drinking tea and looking at uh, different brain activities and trying to, with the knowledge of neuroscience, understand um, how tea drinking affects brain activity. So that's a really cool study. The next one is preventive consumption of green tea modifies the gut microbiota and provides persistent protection from high fat diet induced obesity. And this is a study we'll look at in detail, but it just to summarize, it's a, a rat study that looked at and adds to a large body of research that looks at how drinking tea affects uh, fat metabolism in rats and what that might mean for human health. And another one is tea consumption and risk of diabetes in Chinese population, a multi-center cross-sectional study. Uh, this is out of China. And uh, many, there's 11 different researchers adding to this as a huge project. And it's, it's very interesting. Basically, the results imply that drinking tea daily was negatively related to the risk of diabetes in female, elderly, and obese people. And in addition, drinking dark tea was associated with decreased risk of type 2 diabetes. So that's an interesting study. And the next one is tea consumption and risk of stroke in Chinese adults, a prospective cohort study of of half a million men and women and more epidemiological studies trying to figure out how drinking tea may affect the incidence of stroke. Basically, the more tea drank, the less risk of, of ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke there was. So there's something going on um, with tea affecting the cardiovascular and, and neurovascular systems and also metabolic and digestive systems. So uh, another study is one that we'll be looking at more in detail. It's the titled Tea Consumption and the Risk of Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease and All-Cause Mortality. 
the China PAR, P-A-R project. And we'll look at, at how uh, they tried to pull out from this uh, cohort study and epidemiological study uh, data to see how drinking tea reduced risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. And I have one more. Tea polyphenols in promotion of human health uh, from nutrients. This is more just kind of a, a good review of research and understanding how we at least understand how we know or can theorize that the components of tea, why there might be uh, some kind of, of broad health benefit because there's so many different compounds, which compounds have been studied and um, may have, have benefits. What are experimental studies showing us what are animal studies showing us what are human studies showing us and so that's it's a useful if anyone's interested in this topic in general it's a helpful uh, uh, primer on this topic so let's uh, let's start with um, your study the mouse study on how drinking tea affects the gut and provides apparently provides persistent protection from a high fat diet induced uh, Sorry, obesity-inducing high-fat diet. Yes, sounds like a good one to move to. So this one's entitled Preventive Consumption of Green Tea Modifies the Gut Microbiota and Provides Persistent Protection from a High-Fat Diet-Induced Obesity Situation. Um, by Ju Tsai Tan Wu et al. And this is in the journal Functional Foods. And it looks like some of the researchers are uh, in the... Uh, Jinan University, sorry if I pronounce it incorrectly, in the Zhuhai Precision Medical Center. So it looks like a really cool study. Um, I'm going to pull up my notes for it. So I like to introduce these topics from like a big perspective and then go down to this, the more refined details. So just, you know, from the top level vantage point, just whatever we eat or drink, you know, where we live, uh, how we breathe, how our lifestyle habits are genetic components, all these things are affecting the microbiomes in the body. So the gastrointestinal microbiome um, is clearly being affected by what we consume, you know, we eat and we drink on a daily basis. So really anything that we're putting in, any kind of food or anything we drink is going to change our gut microbiome to some degree. There's more drastic changes and there's more subtle changes over different periods of time. And that's how a lot of I hypothesize different herbal remedies work on some level. Um, so that's a big picture. So uh, considering how big of an issue obesity is in the USA and the world in general, um, this study is trying to make sense out of the traditional tea drinking practice and make a science-based recommendation on if, you know, green tea consumption can be preventive or protective of weight gain on a high-fat diet. And so uh, it also looked at if you concurrently were on a high fat diet, would it reduce the effects, the negative health effects, or how would it compare to just drinking water on a high fat diet? So it tries to look at this from a couple of vantage points, you know, with a rodent um, rat mouse model. But either way, moving forward, um, this study had that limitation. Um, so, you know, mouse or rodent models, rat models don't translate one to one to human bodies. But generally, these are preliminary studies to give us uh, an idea of how to conduct future research, you know, in human bodies and on populations. So they're really good to do. 
And like you mentioned earlier, uh, Michael, there's the empirical TCM evidence to consider that contextualizes like what these things like green tea consumption, for instance, do in the body. And like you mentioned as well, there are various kinds of tea. So, you know, green tea isn't the only tea on the block. They all might do slightly different things. So we have to narrow things down to say like green tea in this study. And then we'll have to go over in another study where tea, uh, oolong tea, white tea, black tea, or red tea. And, and there's even different ways to process all of those kinds of teas. So it's very difficult to get a precise answer, but we're looking for the general thing that's occurring. So um, in science, we want to find the mechanism for how something works so we can understand it and then refine its applications and help people experience less disease. That's generally the goal here. So um, basically in gut science, there's a ratio of um, bacterioides and formiculates, formicutes bacteria in the gut, and that comprises about 90% estimated of the total volume in our GI tract. So to simplify this as a non-scientist myself, uh, the Formicutes group of this bacteria demands that you essentially, <clears throat> excuse me, crave more sugar and uh, a bacteroidetes favoring ratio is correlated with less obesity and they tend to thrive when there's um, more polyphenols consumed in the diet. So each person has a different ratio of these two phylums or groups of bacteria depending on their diet lifestyle and whatnot. So basically, um, tea is full of these polyphenols. And so thus, the hypothesis is that drinking green tea would control obesity or have a pro protective effect to some degree. Yeah. And in the paper, it says, uh, quote, it has been reported that anti-obesity herbal medicines and functional foods, which tea would be a, a functional food in this case, can modify the gut microbiota by increasing the richness of the phylum bacterioides and of genera Acromantia, lactobacillus, and bacteroides, and by reducing that of the phylum Firmic firmicutes, as you were saying, and the firmicutes bacterioides ratio. Liu et al. 2017, end quote. Exactly. So if people like... This just comes down to the idea that we're we're trying to work with here or maybe educate on is that it's not like one thing is good for you. So if you're just slamming the kombucha every day or the kimchi or the whatever that has like one predominant strain, it could be good for you or it could be bad for you depending on what's going on. If you have increased intestinal permeability or other GI issues. So usually we're looking at like ratios, not if something is good or bad. And that's another pretty core idea of Chinese medicine balance and trying to find how the systems work together in a holistic sense. So to add to what you're saying, um, I would translate some of this research to say that if you're not already obese, clinically obese or pre-obese, and you want to reduce some of your inflammation in your body, like you have joint pain, you wake up, you're all sore and feel tired all the time. Uh, you want to spice up your life and your microbiome, it might be a good time to start drinking green tea. But however, uh, other forms of tea are probably good as well, but they might have different uses according to both TCM and scientific studies. So like, check out the research, go on PubMed, go on Google Scholar, just type in like tea and health and in whatever your concern might be. And even according to this study, um, they're saying that Oolong tea might be better for a standard fat diet, whereas green tea might be better for a high fat diet. So that you'd have to quantify and define what those are. And so 
you know, instead of getting reductionistic about it and, and pitting it as a war between these two kinds of bacteria, you know, or groups of them, the study does mention, and this is a quote, that green tea consumption being protective might not be due to the change of some special species, but rather to systemic modulation of microbiota structure depending on the original microbiota status and diet and undergo a multifunctional mechanism like changed fat absorption, intestinal permeability, bile acid metabolism, etc. So, you know, people who are, based on my understanding, have leaky gut or, you know, intestinal permeability, gut dysbiosis or chronic GI issues, signs of that, you know, sticky, smelly, horrific poop and various other signs, um, you know, they might want to start looking into tea as like an everyday preventive or even possible treatment-oriented leaning kind of thing in conjunction with, you know, a real provider, healthcare provider to help them figure out what's going on. And it could really help people. That's how I read studies like this. Like tea is cheap. It's accessible. It tastes good. It's easy to drink. So even if you're not going to change your diet at all, um, this study shows that it might have a protective effect for you as far as, you know, high fat diet induced obesity. And, you know, generally studies like this as a tea nerd, I look at and I, I'm like, okay, the way they brew the tea is how I want to brew it. And also, um, you know, it's not talking about the whole leaf tea necessarily, like the way you brew that in reality. But I, I tend to think that even without like, you know, randomized controlled trials and things like the study isn't on a human population, there's still enough evidence to consider tea. And, you know, it should, and there's something else I want to say about studies like this is that, you know, obesity has a real socioeconomic cause to it as well. So, you know, the scientific bias in this and its conceptualization of obesity it's something to look at. And so this isn't really like shaming or ridicule. This is just a way to talk about how you can use tea to support yourself as it's pretty ubiquitous at any social economic ladder. You can get some green tea, but it remains to be seen if that, you know, 100 pack of green tea in a tea bag is really going to do what this study is talking about. So, you know, we generally try to combine tradition and science, like look at the East Asian populations and how their social structure and rituals with tea worked and their results. And we want to keep some of that alive. We don't want to just boil it down into this like gross green tea pill and then just pop that every day and be like, okay, I got my pill. I'm healthy now. So this is part of a, a multi-prong preventive strategy alongside. Um, and just because I want all of our episodes to add up here, you know, a daily exercise practice like Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga, regular acupuncture tune-ups, you know, mental health, all these uh, feeling of safety and security in your life where you don't have stress on an ongoing basis. All these ideas about functional foods or food therapies, they work kind of like slow. Uh, they start slow, but they build up and they're cumulative. So, you know, if you're about to have a heart attack, I don't know, maybe you need to go see a doctor and get some medical help, you know, green, hitting the green tea isn't going to solve that. But you know, we're talking about preventive medicine, in a way, via the lens of this study. So I mean, I think there's enough evidence just on this study alone to suggest that, you know, your microbiome has a lot to do with your health, as far as obesity is concerned, and that green tea, you know, might modulate it 
in a favorable way. And then the studies you listed before show some more evidence for that. So the question to me is, how do you evaluate all that evidence? And how do you make a health recommendation, even just for yourself, um, let alone as a medical provider? I mean, there's enough here for me to try it out because it's low hanging fruit. The worst that would happen is I lost some money and drank some tea. But as long as it's not in lieu of a real medical treatment that I need, and I'm just saying to myself, oh, tea is going to fix it, this is pretty low risk. So, I don't know. Does does that make sense to you? This all points to uh, lifestyle recommendations. This is essentially tea drinking is is a lifestyle recommendation that involves uh, what they're calling functional food, meaning that it has some physiological impact maybe over time, that it's not an it's not a vitamin in this case, but it has apparently measurable impacts on multiple systems in the body. Uh, obviously, the microbiome being a key one, but also, as you you'd mentioned in this paper, mentions uh, other research into how tea alters bile acid metabolism, which affects fat metabolism. So that affects there. There are multiple systems involved. Uh, multiple things to focus on, multiple studies that have been done. And in this paper, if you, if you read it, you'll read some of their summary of, of the research that predates or, or comes before or builds that they're building onto. And uh, essentially, it boils down to uh, adding to a, a picture or a landscape of information and evidence that consistently showing that regular drinking of tea seems to have protective benefits, even in these short-term cases. Of course, the lifespan of a mouse or a rat uh, is, is obviously different, but uh, it's it provides a measurable uh, experimental context for us to extrapolate from. And what's interesting about a study like this, even if you're going to want to dismiss it because it's, it's an animal study, um, it's one piece in a large body of evidence that should be looked at in the context of these other epidemiological studies that are human-based and that, that show an attempt to kind of extrapolate how this lifestyle uh, choice of tea drinking, regular tea drinking, can impact uh, your risk factors for chronic diseases, obesity being obviously a, a very complex, pernicious one. But uh, even if one is not obese, we may still have vulnerabilities to chronic heart disease and, and stroke and neurologic diseases and cognitive decline and cognitive diseases and things like that. So we know, or at least uh, anyone who's looked at chronic disease and Chinese medicine is is essentially uh, in many ways, a kind of a a perfectly designed system to assess chronic disease and treat chronic disease uh, because of its complex systems way of of approaching problems, health problems, and and the way the body and the organ systems and the different systems overlap and interconnect and interrelate and interaffect each other. Uh, It makes, it starts to make sense when you look at this larger picture of evidence that habitual drinking of this substance, uh, an extraction of the substance is affecting the digestive system, which has strong links to what's ending up in the blood. So it's affecting the cardiovascular system, which affects the compounds that circulate in and around the brain and the nervous system. So that's affecting the central nervous system and its long-term health. And then going back to digestion and, and metabolism, it's affecting things that 
could impact uh, particularly fat and sugar metabolism in a way that uh, helps prevent chronic inflammatory diseases like diabetes as, as a key one. So I had one bit to add to that. Yeah. Too. I, I forgot to mention it earlier and then we can move on to your study. Um, but yeah. I wanted to say that when you talk about tea, y'all have to talk about the cultural perception of caffeine sensitivity and how some people just won't drink tea because, Oh, that has right. caffeine. I can't drink it, which ties back to what you're saying about the other things in tea that like L-theanine and other things that modulate that um, response. And so, you know, different teas have different levels of substances in them, you know, generally high quality, organic pesticide free. it brings up the point that you should be thinking about how you're consuming anything, whether it's a medication, a food, a tea, how is it being produced and what are those, the impacts. And, and even if you don't care about other people or the planet, you should be concerned about how that plant or substance or food or drug was prepared and its potential impacts on, on your body. So I think that's the key thing to what you're bringing up. And you blew my mind earlier because just like, you know, one substance isn't enough to fix our body usually, um, that's just like one study isn't enough to say that something works or not. It's the same. You have to look at the whole picture and have like a cumulative analysis, what's going on and where it's going. And then you get like a, a picture of the tendencies of what's going to happen or what is happening. And from there, then you can draw conclusions. And, you know, it's the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. But using a mixture of both, you we can really know what's going on with our health. And we can also know experientially, you know, a lot of people talk about the chi of tea, which we're not going to get into in this. Um, but um, there's a science there as well. Drink a cup of tea. How do you feel? What, what do you feel in your body? I mean, that's just something as a daily ritual you could use, like, what, what am I feeling now? Even feeling your body more from the inside out could be good for obesity itself because when we're putting in all these high-fat diet foods into us, are we really asking how do we feel? Do we know how we feel? So even just the ritual of drinking tea and smelling it, tasting it, what do I feel and think about it could be part of a health regimen of using functional foods. And that itself is hard to study. Like how does that affect our health? I did want to look at some of the details from that study before we move on from it. It was pretty interesting to look at the way they made the tea. Like you were saying, they basically, they tried to mimic daily human tea drinking. They took two grams of dry tea leaves that were placed in 100 milliliters of boiling hot water. It was shaken on a rotator at a speed of 100 RPMs for four minutes. So I, I agitate my tea when I brew it and I steep it. It does draw out more of the what's in the tea. So that seems normal to me. I don't think I do it at a hundred RPMs, but <laughs> work on that. Get up. To... They also then discarded the leaves uh, and then gave the infusion at room temperature to the mice in lieu of water. So it was basically like here, instead of water, you're going to drink tea. And they, they drank that. So that's interesting. Oh. 
And another facet that was interesting is they did test or control for if drinking the tea would reduce their dietary intake, right? Like, so mm -hmm. you drink the tea and you eat less. Oh, wow, you have a lower fat diet. Well, you ate less. So they did control for that too, which was pretty smart on the part. And they did analyze the contents of the tea that they extracted to try to normalize it and make sure that it seemed like a realistic comparison to human consumption. And there's a bunch of math that they did to do that to if, to basically see what the polyphenol content was and the various major components were. So that's that's interesting too, that they did try to control that and uh, standardize it. So it wasn't just, sorry? I just need to know, did they actually try to drink that tea? I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I wonder, probably. <laughs> they probably joked about it. Like, yeah, that, that's probably, knowing knowing anybody, I, I know it'd probably be quite a joke. Let's see. Uh, so basically, their initial experiment uh, showed that green tea infusion protected the animals from obesity and fatty liver while when green tea was consumed together with a high-fat diet. So they took normal, healthy mice and observed compared to uh, mice just drinking water, the tea uh, mice that drank tea while they were then put on a high fat diet uh, had less incidence of obesity and less uh, signs of fatty liver disease. So that was the main takeaway. And I would, one they thing did, to add to that, uh -huh. oh, well, just, you know, I like to look at the public health data when we talk about this. So, you know, according to uh, UCLA Health, um, the prevalence of fatty liver disease ranges from 10 to 46% in our population. So, you know, there's different studies and different ways of looking at that. But even if it was the lowest, let's say 10%, obviously this is going to be useful to our population. Yeah. And the other things that they mentioned, there's another set of research that they reference in their discussion at the end. They, this is a helpful, I think, summary of, of the known benefits of tea. Quote, by exploring the effects of tea and its active ingredients on various obesity indicators, researchers have found that tea can effectively reduce the levels of serum total cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDL, and triglycerides, monocyte chemotaxis protein, MCP-1, C-reactive protein, CRP, interleukin-6, IL-6, and granulocyte colony-stimulating factor, GCSF, suggesting that the anti-obesity activity of T components might be associated with the inhibition of fat absorption and a reduction in inflammatory factor levels, quoting Badansky et al., 2012, Chen et al., 2011, et al., 2012, end quote. So as I was mentioning earlier, there is experimental data showing that tea consumption reduces uh, fat, increases fat metabolism, and it also prevents fat absorption. So that may, that the effect may be measured here in the gut microbiota and its activity changed by the tea. It's helping select out the beneficial bacterial colonies or groups seems to assist the other effects of the tea in a way that provides a, a larger benefit and a multi-system effect uh, that seems to be helpful for specifically obesity, but as we've mentioned before, a, a number of other inflammatory diseases, chronic diseases that are often the cause of long-term, uncontrolled, unregulated inflammation in the various systems, the major systems of the body. So that's that's the RAT study. Um, I think it's a helpful, more specific look at the effects of tea in an attempt to look at how tea is, is affecting 
uh, living things physiology. Now we're going to look at the the paper in preventive cardiology published this year in the Europe by the European Society of Cardiology and. This is an epidemiological study. It's a, a prospective cohort study, meaning they uh, took a group of people, uh, 100,902 Chinese adults from the project of prediction for ASCVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk in China, known as the China PAR, P-A-R, in 15 provinces across China since 1998. So they enrolled all of these people in this study and had them take initial screening and surveys, and then over time surveyed them every about seven ish years or so. Uh, I forget the 7.3 years was the follow-up and they did that twice. So 7.3 years later and then another seven-ish years later they followed up and or looked at other records, for example, um, medical records and or death certificates and things. So they were tracking specifically atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease incidents and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease mortality and all-cause mortality respectively. There's basically what they found uh, by analyzing the data over this uh, 15 plus 20 years, uh, they found that, quote, habitual tea drinkers had 1.4 years longer of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease-free years and 1.26 years longer of life expectancy at the index age of 50 years, end quote. So it might be helpful, I think, before we dive any deeper to understand, especially from your public health perspective, what is this kind of research? Like, how is this different than a controlled trial, for example? And why would we be reliant on this type of research? Why does public health use epidemiological data instead of always using what we know is, is the only pure, perfect type of research known as randomized controlled trials. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Um, but fine. Those are expensive. RCTs are expensive, hard to design, and they have their own pros and cons. So like what we're really trying to talk about, I think, is like the chain of evidence to show that something works or like as a clinician or an individual, how, how do you decide that there's enough research that has been done to do something? And that's what it kind of boils down to. Yeah, and so, you have to um, you have to ask that question and decide for yourself too, uh, or rely on people who write guidelines, which is essentially what they're doing at that level is is looking at the body of evidence and deciding eh, is there enough here to make a, a very broad, confident guideline that that people will rely on in practicing medicine to make medical decisions. So, um, if an area of medicine isn't really interested in in something that much or if if there's a cultural lack of interest for example like in tea I, maybe there isn't a huge amount of interest in it in the US cuz it's not as as widely consumed but you have to just become your own guideline determiner basically and look at at all the available research and uh, try to overcome any biases you may have and and confirmation biases you may be susceptible to but looking at this kind of bodies of evidence different types of research and making decisions so sorry i didn't mean to interject there but i thought it'd be helpful to clarify how how at least i'm thinking about it for myself oh i love I love interjections. As long as it's not a vaccine interjection or no, an in injection, then I'm good. Uh, that's a joke too. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
cohort studies are, are really great. So they allow you to, you know, give you like a temporal temporal sequence of like when things happen in, in terms of a disease state entering into a group of people. And it allows you to calculate really nerdy things like relative risk and other um, epidemiological, you know, percentages and ratios that let you know if something is protective or actually causes um, something or or neither, just does nothing. And it, it works um, as long as you can control for the bias and the enrollment in the, um, the study. There's some, you know, there's every kind of study has bias. But, um, you know, one of the things that kind of plagues studies like this potentially, and I haven't looked at this particular one, it's just um, since cohort studies can be a large uh, perspective ones with a lot of people, sometimes people drop out of the study. They just don't want to do it anymore. And that can introduce some uh, some bias. But there's also ways to control for that. So um, we're when looking at a study, it's just, especially ones like this, it's just good to look at how they're controlling for... They definitely addressed that and talked about how they ended up with many less people than were initially enrolled because of things like that. So it seems like they were completely on top of that, those pitfalls, potential pitfalls. So that's helpful. I think that's why you're seeing it in such a prominent journal like Preventive Cardiology, the European Journal of Preventive Cardiology. So Exactly. So generally speaking, they know what they're doing and why they chose that study design. So it's just a low-hanging fruit when looking at any studies like mm -hmm. does this study design even make sense for right. what we're trying to figure out so let's think of it like we're looking at a group of people who are drinking tea over a period of time and seeing if it's protective for something so a cohort study sounds like a pretty good idea there you know the rct would be a little more hard to pull off right you'd have to have the main group and the control group and blinded, you know, people getting tea, not knowing it's tea, people not knowing they're giving it to people that that it's tea or not. And then people evaluating what happened, not knowing what was given or not. I mean, that's, that's really hard to do. So, you know, this level of evidence is pretty good, actually. And what's interesting is they had three different groups. Uh, they had people who never drank tea, the reference group. They had people who began or stopped drinking tea after the baseline survey, who began or stopped drinking tea, and those who maintained their tea consumption habits all along. So they're trying to compare all those, those groups. Uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the statistical methods used uh, or the models used to, to rule out things like age, sex, uh, education level, uh, smoking history, alcohol drinking, physical activity level, dietary factors. These are all things they took into consideration. I'm, I'm uh, completely unfamiliar with the, the math and statistics needed to, to do that kind of separation of, of variables. But are, are, do you have any, can you explain that at all? Or is that, should we just kind of go on faith that it was Honestly. done? I'm just aware that it's done and I have right. a very vague idea of the math. I'm, math is not my number one subject. <laughs> <Same>. So <laughs> thinking with that, one strategy I use is, um, and anyone can do this, preferably from an educational email account, just find out the researchers and send them an email and say, hey, could you just give me a rundown of how you controlled with these confounding factors and things like that in your study? And they're usually really excited to hear from someone. They're like, yeah. like wow, someone's podcasting on my tea study. Awesome. Let's send them an email back. So 
in that same topic, if you look at the the number of people who read papers, a lot of sites track that. A lot of journals track like how many times a paper has been read. A lot of a lot of papers have only read been read less than like a hundred times. So if you're actually reading it enough that you're asking questions and then you reach out, right? And you know the study that you mentioned. What was the number? How many people were in the uh, cohort? Originally, one hundred and thirteen thousand four hundred forty eight adults uh, enrolled. And then eventually that got down to the 100,000. So that's a huge number of, that's a lot of data. Yeah. And it's interesting, um, just speaking of bias in general, like we could look at a study like this and see that, yeah, it has a really large sample size. That could be a positive or downside because it just makes it really hard to run a study with that large uh, population size. But you know, there's been studies that disprove the association between the MMR vaccine and autism that had almost a million people in the study. But we, someone might look at that and say, oh, that's not true. That's, see, that's, they're just, the scientists are trying to make up a story there and, and cover up the fact that it does. But then we'll read this and say, oh, hey, tea is good to drink. So it's interesting how our personal bias goes into even the reading of the study that in some cases less than 100 people read, and then how does that actually hit anyone's clinical advice on a day-to-day basis? Um, it's just the, the how science actually comes into our lives and how we look at it and how we use it is a really interesting topic. And I think it's good to be open-minded because there's probably some evidence that says uh, tea doesn't do very much for certain outcomes, and we have to include that as well, even though right. we might not like it because we drink tea. Yeah. Yeah, without going without going into the detailed uh, statistical analysis, it is helpful, I think, to look at some of the what they're calling the subgroup analysis here. Basically, there's differences between the very habitual drinkers and the sometimes drinkers. Uh, it, it seems that uh, the habitual drinkers uh, had the, the most, which is, makes sense. Uh, based on the hypothesis anyway, that uh, habitual tea drinking basically has an inverse association with the risks of the study outcomes. So what I take away from that, and and correct me if this sounds like a a bad take, but basically the recommendation that would arrive out of this is is drink tea every day and never stop. (laughs) Especially if you're a Chinese of Chinese descent or of Chinese origin. Because that's specific, we should say that this study specifically looks at a Chinese population, right? And that may, in in a very like, from a public health perspective, we shouldn't uh, necessarily assume that the results of this study are apply applicable applicable to other populations. Although I did see a very helpful commentary uh, on. Uh, race-based or basically race is a construct in many cases for for most public health considerations or or it's these kind of environmental factors are more significant than any subtle like genetic variation in populations so that was an interesting uh, side note definitely i mean that would be what you pointed out originally makes sense you can't just take one population and apply that to another population necessarily, but it's still good to look at and it gives you ideas for further research. And I think 
there could be a lot of factors that might be different between, you know, the previous study was talking about how tea drinking worked with microbiome in the body. So there might be different um, microbiome statuses in uh, some Asian tea drinking populations where there might be a different effect in some cases. But I mean, overall, if you're talking about originally 100,000 people, I think there's still something to be deduced from that. And I think you're right. Um, this does, you know, conclude that we should be tea high until we die. I mean, in other words, <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. Um, right. You know, unless, you know, there might be risk factors for drinking too much tea. Like if you have chronic anxiety, um, maybe you don't want to drink caffeine all the time. There, right. there, There's reasons not to drink tea. And many people already know about those. Um, but that could be worked out, too. There's ways around it. Right. Yeah, and it, I think it's helpful to 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 read from their their sharing of their limitations on this study. And they did say that there was very rigorous field work and reliable information collection that really helps guarantee uh, data quality and credibility. So they they acknowledge that, but then they say, "quote However, several limitations should be noted. First, the number of coronary heart disease incidents and death." Cases were only modest at best, which weakened the statistical power for detecting significant results. Second, the findings for different T-types should be interpreted with cautions, as results might have been contaminated by participants habitually consuming more than one type of tea, and the proportion of black tea consumers was limited. Third, some of the recognized targets of tea bioactive compounds, including inflammatory and oxidative stress biomarkers, were not measured. In addition, tea consumption is part of a cultural heritage and its health effects might be confounded by other eating and drinking patterns. For example, consumption of other flavonoid-rich foods or beverages like coffee. Thus, our results from the current study population might be generalizable to the general Chinese adults or other East Asia populations with similar dietary pattern and tea drinking habits, but not for the West, end quote. So that, that does kind of summarize what we were we were getting at a moment ago that there there are limitations to the study, uh, but it again it adds to a body of of evidence uh, and encourages more research, which is is maybe unsatisfyingly the result of of a lot of summaries uh, of research that I, I've come across. It's like this is a very minor, significant result, and we need more research. <laughs> so, but that's what this game is all about: is doing research to then get funded to do more research to then get funded to do more research, etc. So, and you know, to add to what you're you were saying, like um, we can contrast this kind of study with you know the the mouse or rat study and see that they don't necessarily have a culture that we're aware of. We just you know put tea in them and <laughs> lab rat you know, culture. Right. So who knows, like, if that's a confounder, the, you know, elaborate rodent culture, um, tea drinking habits, we haven't got into that yet. But generally, we can say that something is happening. And then we look at, you know, this, this study, this cohort study, 100,000 people, something generally happened. Yeah, there can be factors that are leading to bias or make the results, you know, not as good as we want. But like you're saying, we can just continue that we can continue our own personal research for our case study, just, hey, I drink tea, and then we can talk about it and generate new ideas. Like the whole idea that science has to be fixed and everything figured out and perfect and done is 
that's the flaw when people think that science is a body of knowledge. In to some extent, it is, but it's also a research methodology for inquiry into things we want to know about, which keeps changing. Right? It's not done or anything. Yeah, and some questions can't be answered, and it's frustrating. And I think our we're hardwired as humans to arrive at answers, even even though we. We don't necessarily have all the information. I think it's it's an impulse to to be definitive, to to make clear, concise decisions. Just from a survival perspective, uh, you have to uh, make very specific survival based decisions. But when we're talking about kind of long term assessment of information and answering of complex questions. Uh, you're not going to actually be able to arrive at, at a clear answer. And that's why you have to be comfortable with making loose decisions or, or loosely sticking to an idea and then being willing to let go of it. And that's hard. I know it's hard to let go of, uh, of an idea, especially if we tie our identities to it or, or say, I'm the, the, the guy who promotes this thing or the gal who promotes this method. So if you attach identity and meaning to to a specific conclusion or or method or treatment or approach or drug or solution it's a trap it's just a trap i agree with that it's if anyone can fall into that we could right anyone probably we probably are to some degree um so just staying fresh with our thinking doing some meditation some internal practice of some form generally tends to free us up to see things in a new way and so that's an important part of science too, is just before you even look at these studies, just have an open mind. Like, what is it really telling me? Or am I just looking to prove what I already think is true? This has proven a couple things for me um, that I didn't know about, so or at least provided evidence that I can look into um, more. And also, my partner just moved to the cardiology floor in her local hospital, so it's kind of cool that tea drinking and tai chi are both protective for heart health. So right. I'm going to be sending them these studies. And, Very cool. I mean, they're just going to start doing tai chi and serving everyone tea, right? Like just go to the cardiology <laughs> floor. Hey, everyone, here's some tea. So you see that that's funny, but that's the it's, gap between it's actually the knowledge a good idea. And practice. Yeah, like tomorrow, just go, go to work and teach people Tai Chi and serve them tea. But it'll be, it'll be 10, 20, 30 years before that happens. I mean, at this local hospital, there, there was a Tai Chi class prior to COVID, but it doesn't have this like integrated perspective it's it's very isolated like okay tai chi is good for heart health but what about with tea and this and that and that it, it it takes a while to get there yeah it makes me think what if cardiologists had the time or or public health uh, experts who have a focus on cardiology or who include or recognize obviously with uh, heart disease being a significant killer in this country and around the world what if public health experts included or somehow had influence over public education and an early age education if we started teaching. And I guess the challenge is we don't have enough. Someone would say, well, there's not enough evidence to like 
implement a, a widespread program. And so it takes someone who just is really passionate about it and is like, no, I, I see enough evidence. Like I, this is enough for me to just start recommending this and teaching this to children or something like that. Like, Hey kids, does anyone in your family drink tea? Oh, they don't. Well, consider, uh, we're going to make tea together in class today. And we're going to talk about how tea, if you drink tea, it, it might help you in the long run. Um, maybe your, your family can stop drinking juice and soda and maybe drink tea instead or something like that. I mean, you really hit the the nail on the head there. Like tea is a substitute for just soda for Americans would be huge, like monumental if you're able to achieve just that. Um, I mean, some of our ideas are so simple that it's just hard to register the impact they would have. Um, and just for me personally, like when I was younger, I like to play video games and sit in a room and, you know, with the lights off and chug my Mountain Dew and stuff. And, (laughs) you know, I had a lot of (laughs) mental health issues at that time. And then as I grew up, I started noticing the association between, uh, you know, this sugar product and my sedentary lifestyle. And then I aimed to change that. So yeah, who, who tells you that? I mean, I remember when I was very little, in elementary school, I had a PE instructor who said, hey, you need to breathe in and out through your nose. That's healthier for you. And I just did it since then. And then when I started going to Tai Chi and Qigong classes, they, they told me that too. And I was like, oh, no, I already got that covered. I learned that in elementary school. But like, there's a bunch of mouth breathers in the class. And so, you know, even just that, that alone, um, there's just so many things just like that. And we all know what it does, but, you know, there is a track you can go to be a public health educator, but then you get stymied by what the body of evidence they have says health is. So then anyone who's thinking like we do wouldn't want to probably go that way and read off of a script. So then that's why no one's doing it. So I've tried to like play the the line between both worlds and it ends up offending a lot of people and causing strife unless you're really smooth about it, which I'm not. So there you yeah, go. Maybe over time. I mean, you're just entering as a student at this point. So it takes time to build up that level of, of confidence, that level of respect, that level of credibility. And I, I, you know, if this podcast does nothing else, maybe it'll help both of us Uh, better explain and talk about these things so that when we do get those unique opportunities to speak with someone in a position to make those big decisions, we might be able to inject a little bit of, of insight or even just a a question like, Hey, have you looked into this whole area of, of research that shows there's a significant benefit of, of doing Tai Chi twice a week for this population? Have, have you, has your office even, is your, are you even aware of this? Do you even know that this exists? Like, honestly, I, I imagine that's the case specifically for Chinese herbal medicine and, uh, managing symptoms and, and coronavirus. Like, I think there's just a complete lack of awareness for the fact that this is even a thing. And, and so I'm sure if 
if you can find a willing and open ear, you could potentially find someone who's like, okay, let, let's do a little pilot study. Let's do a little small comparative controlled trial or something and, and see what kind of results you can get. And then who knows if, if that, cause yeah, just, the, just keep pushing, keep pushing in, in looking for opportunities to, to share what you're seeing as, as useful, as helpful. So, and I think that's, that's why I think that's why acupuncture has slowly made its way into uh, the mainstream to the point where last year it was it was approved by Medi-Cal, Medi the Medicare and Medicaid program approved acupuncture for low back pain, and and that's based on decades now and thousands and thousands of of studies slowly showing and pushing and and helping move and people doing it in certain contexts and helping find the right people to say oh wow that that is interesting. I didn't even know that was a study. Let's keep looking at that. And there's enough evidence that it was convincing enough to the doctors and public health experts that make decisions for Medicare and Medicaid that they were like, yep, we'll, we'll cover it. Uh, so it's a good example of, of how it may take a long time, but eventually it'll hopefully if the system and the methods, the scientific method is working as it should, and it's not being completely destroyed by political uh, terrorists <laughs> that it finds good evidence, finds its way into the right hands and good decisions are then made uh, based on that good evidence. So I, I agree. And honestly, if like anything that we're say saying in this podcast attracts the interest of a researcher or any medical professional or scientist, um, or we said something wrong, or we didn't quite understand it, or they think we could know more about it or be introduced to something totally new, I would love to have them as another square in our Zoom call and then just listen in, I mean, and really connect to that experience. That would be really important to me that people know that people in the acupuncture profession do want to hear that. And we're not anti-science. We're not, we're not ignoring what's going on and changing in the world. I mean, maybe some of us are, but quite a few of us actually do care. And we're trying to get our scientific chops down and do better and learn more. And so um, that doesn't mean we're rejecting the tradition. It just means we're working with the tradition and science and scientific discoveries. And that's what I love about doing the podcast. Likewise. Yeah. I think this is a good place to wrap up and uh, close down. We will uh, be doing, if we can get time on the weekend, it'd be fun to do the uh, quick look at Kamala Harris's birth chart since it got released. Somebody released it uh, through the San Jose Mercury news, I believe. And uh, we quickly pulled up her chart in the Zouwei Doshu system, the pole star astrology system, and then you pulled up her uh, four pillars, uh, the Batsa system. So it'd be cool to look at something that's not just uh, science and, and research and kind of give our, our takes on, on uh, a very prominent pol political figure who's uh, potentially reaching a, a a new pinnacle of their their life. Uh, what does their chart look like, and and what can we glean from that, and uh, what can we look out for, um, and what? Yeah, it's a it's a good conversation on what are these these traditional astrological systems useful for, and what's interesting about them to us. So, 
yeah, I would love to do that with uh, the amount of time that it might take. I mean, with bots, uh, you could look at their um, their luck pillars for their 10-year cycles of growth and just see, you know, in general, are they going to be in growth or decline, strong or weak? And then you can even right. do, I have a Chinese medical astrology book, so we can find nice. out, like, what percentage of strength her organs are and, like, yeah. you know, I don't There's... know, that gets kind of crazy. Well, there's actually overlaps with the the pole star system too. There's the ten year cycles are are looked at in the pole star system, and then there's the the health and disease and death palace or the the house that is in that system. So we could compare and see if there's any uh, correspondence among those systems, or if they're just completely at odds with each other. That'll be good for any of our listeners who are interested in that topic. So we'll we'll tease it here and then we'll see uh, when that just look in, in the feed for when that pops out. Very good. Very nice. Thanks, Michael. It's been really fun. Yeah, likewise. Likewise.